What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 100 and something of the podcast. I never remember the episode numbers, but uh, point being, not a very new podcast anymore. But for those of you out there just tuning in for the first time, basically what we do here in the podcast is uh, I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published on uh, you know something uh, on a person or event or thing or idea that uh, you would like to hear about and I apologize for the uh, <laughs> the landscaping noise going on outside my window right now but uh, anyway try to tune that out but anyway yeah so uh, so we try to have an author on about something you uh, hopefully will find interesting and then at the end of the podcast or you know even in the middle of the podcast if you get your druthers about you you go ahead and Give the book a purchase yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Jeremy Black, and Dr. Black is Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Exeter and a Senior Fellow at the Center for the Study of America and the West at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Uh, he's probably the most prolific historian in the world, having written, uh, by my count at least, at least 180 books on war, foreign policy, and other issues, starting with British foreign policy in the age of Walpole in 1985, and ending for now, I think I, I think this is the most recent one, with Geographies of War, which was published in 2022. But he's not here to discuss that book, he's here to discuss a book of his published last October by Yale University Press, and recently made available in paperback, and that is A Short History of War. So, uh, Dr. Black, thank you very, very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah. So, uh, your, your prolicity, uh, I'm interested, what, what is your, your process like? So you, <laughs> how does one write to what amounts to about, uh, you know, like thirty-seven books a year, basically. Do you do you write in your sleep, or how does that work? Uh, that's a, I think in my sleep. That's a perfectly good <laughs> question. Um, and let me say, I'm well aware that when I die, the obituaries will refer to me as a freak, and you know that he's written so much and all the rest of it, and they'll imply <laughs> that he'd be, he'd be better if he'd read, read written less. What I would say is several things. First of all. What I think is interesting in my work is not the quantity, it's the quality, and more particularly mm -hmm. the engagement against a lot of established interpretations. I don't see the point of simply writing a book that summaries, summarizes existing views. What I like to do is to mm -hmm. engage them with a critical stance. And, so, and that's easier because so many historians and indeed other so-called intellectuals engage in groupthink. And if you're outside the group, it's easier to look to scrutinize some of the interpretations. And secondly, sure. um, let me tell you, I mean, you mentioned this is published by Yale, which has published quite a few of my books. 
publishers like Yale use academic readers. They don't just simply say, oh, here's a Jeremy Black, we'll publish it. Um, and right. each individual book has gone through a process of academic scrutiny and anonymous peer review. Um, if people think I write too much, they should take that up with the academic readers. Uh, I write what <laughs> I would like to think is works of quality and interest, and then those are positively reviewed, and sometimes the reviewers answer, ask for substantive changes, and I make those substantive changes. So it's an interaction of myself and the review process. Gotcha. So this book, uh, A Short History of War, what made you want to write this book? What was the, what was the genesis of this one? Right. Well, there was two genesis, as it were. I'm not sure what the plural of genesis is. Um, Genesis? Well, we should have an Old Testament scholar on to talk about that. No, no, (laughs) but there are two. There are two two stimulants, as it were. One is that Yale had a series of short histories, and Heather McCallum approached me and asked me if I would like to write for it. So. For me, and you ask how do I often get a lot of books written, I would recommend to people write what the publisher, you know, capitalism or consumerism Mm -hmm. works. So that's number one. Number two (laughs) is it suited me because I've written actively uh, on the history of war and I'd written a similar book from a different perspective on a different format about a quarter of a century earlier. And I wanted to look anew at the subject. A lot of work comes out in the history of war. And I wanted to see what I could uh, advance from the perspective of the Yale approach, which is 40 chapters, each very short, and to see how Mm. I could structure the history of war in that fashion. So it was interesting for me. It caused me to think things through. And that is always, you know, to be challenged is good for you. I like I was a very active teacher. Being challenged by bright students is an enormous stimulus. I used to say to the first years, they thought that they were there, that I was there to stop them getting bored. I used to say to them, be under no illusions. You're here to stop me getting (laughs) bored. And there is a process by which both teaching and research by stimulating the teacher, then hopefully stimulates also the listener or the reader. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, but you know, it seems like a short book on a subject like this, on the history of war, would seem to be harder to write than a long one. I mean, I would think at least, um, you know, yes, you're there's right. so much danger sure, in what say- to leave it... Yeah, no, you're yeah, absolutely sure. right. I've written a lot of short, I've written a lot of long books. My biography of George III is 200,000 words, for example. My book on the pursuit of knowledge, uh, the, the information pursuit, is 200,000 words. You're absolutely right. But short books, and I've done short histories of Germany, France, the Atlantic, the Caribbean, uh, Italy, Portugal, London, sh- monarchy. Short books are much harder. You do not have spare space in order to, as it were, luxuriate. You have to make every sentence count, and you have both to explain and to engage the reader. Mm. So how do, you, um, how do you do that? How do you combat the, um, the propensity to uh, write long? How do you uh, 
Um, how do you trim the fat, I suppose, and, and well, making I do it sure the other that way. a... No, no, no. I do it the other way around. I write in a very mm-hmm. spare fashion. Usually when I write yeah. a book, I write first what I call the spine. And for an 80,000-word and the spine is what I think the organization is, the major points are. And it's designed to be you know, taught. It's designed to be, as it were, like a series of lectures. And then having got that out and being satisfied with it, and I endlessly revise my work, being satisfied with it, I then add to it. Now, in this particular book, there was the added discipline that I had to, as it were, have my 40 topics, and Yale had to have agreed the before I started writing. So that was an added discipline. But what that meant is that in each of the shorter sections, I wrote what I thought were the key points there and then subsequently came back and added to them. So I don't do what some people do, which is write all of chapter one, all of chapter two, all of chapter three. I do it in my view as a sort of engineer almost i am engineering a book with a structure Mm -hmm. gotcha okay all right so before we get to the book itself uh just a question because i'm one of those guys who reads always reads the acknowledgements and in the book and you know for people out there who read books you should always read the acknowledgements so i was wondering uh tell us uh, who is uh virgilo ilari and how has he influenced your work Right, Virgilio is an Italian scholar, he's about 15 years older than me, and he has influenced my work. First, he's an 18th centuryist, I by background of an 18th centuryist, so he's a, I'm always interested in scholars who have done work in similar fields, and he's a distinguished military historian. Secondly, he's somebody who's interdisciplinary, so he's written in a very interesting fashion on geopolitics. I'm interested in geopolitics, as you will know, I've written a couple of histories of geopolitics. And thirdly, and this is really impressive, he's a genuinely cosmopolitan global historian. In other words, he's an Italian, he writes in English, he runs a journal which is published in English, he wants to reach out to the wider world. And I think that's very good because so many historians are very insular. And let me say, that includes historians of war. You are having real fun in your background with your Zoom noises, aren't you? Oh, I know. Yeah, like I said, it's the, the landscaping guys are, are okay. here. So. Okay. <laughs> so I got the... Lucky you to have second. a landed estate. I mean, here in Clark, <laughs> Britain, we don't. Anyway, fire on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry. They're like right below the window, of course, right now. Um, yeah, so the book itself... Uh, obviously said it's 40 short chapters. You basically start with prehistory all the way up to the current day. Uh, But the the point you make really in the beginning of the book and uh, with the advent of the human species is that uh, warfare is not something that just emerged with civilization, uh, you know, with agriculture, with social organization, etc., etc., it's always been a constant in in human uh, behavior in human life, and that it basically it's an integral it's integral to human society, 
and it's likely here to stay in some form of another. It's almost as human as free will or, or speech or something like that. Yes, I argue that war is inherent to the species, and I would argue that competition is natural to species, and that therefore it isn't a learned characteristic which can be traced by modern commentators to something in the present that they dislike the supposed origins of, so i.e. the notion idea that war isn't somehow due to social organization or capitalism or agriculture or whatever they don't like. I think that's a very childish view. It's a childish view that came in in particular in the 1960s. There were earlier uh, iterations of it. The idea that human beings were basically okay, and if it wasn't for the vileness of states, everybody would sort of join hands and sing songs together. And that's just Silly, but obviously that silliness tells you a lot about a certain type of um, intellect. Well, I was about to say intellectual approach. I think that's giving it a favour to call it intellectual. It's about it's about an approach resting on feelings rather than thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in in antiquity itself, the reliance on force that that reflected the values of the peoples of of the different civilizations. Well, yes, but also the thing to bear in mind is human beings had images of deities that reflected their sense of the natural order of existence. And of course, as you will know, uh, these deities fought each other. So um, whether you're looking at, for example, um, early Indian religion, early Greek religion, you have deities of early Egyptian religion, deities that fight each other and it's uh, that reflects the idea of in a way worlds in collision or forces in collision of which human beings are an aspect of that mm-hmm. and i guess a more general question why i, I know some people say this uh, i don't but uh but to ask this question for some, why do we study uh, ancient war uh, what what does that really have to teach us? What what do we have to learn from, say, the Sassanids or the or the Roman Empire or the Carthaginians? You know, what do we have to learn from Marathon or or Cannae or or the Varian disaster or Gaugamela or something like that? Why uh, why is it important to still study these things? Right. Well, it isn't it isn't important that we do anything in mm. particular. It can be very interesting. Uh, and it can be instructive if one understands the non, uh, the contingent and non-predictable uh, nature of war. But I would argue that it is actually more significant and useful to look at more recent conflicts when we can see sources from both sides in war or battle, rather than conflicts which tend to be the earlier ones, though not necessarily only the earlier ones, mm-hmm. where we can only see one side. Right. Uh, but speaking of one of those um, ancient battles, the, the Battle of, of Cannae, and, the, and the, that battle and the, the whole... Um, the, Cannae and the, the double envelopment, right? That has had a disproportionate influence on Western military thought. How, how so? 
Well, I don't think it has had a disproportionate influence. I mean, I think it was cited by some later people, but it doesn't mean they necessarily had their ideas determined by something. I mean, a standard historical point, Mm -hmm. as you will be well aware, is that you might cite something. It doesn't mean you necessarily get your idea from it. In other words, you will often cite things that that offer bias confirmation rather than being the actual origins of your idea. So the notion that Schlieffen adopted the Schlieffen plan because he was aware of Canai, I think is quite frankly silly. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. All right, Um, and you you write in the book that the Roman conquest of Egypt marked a major transition in the geopolitics of the ancient world. How so? Well, because what it did was give the Romans um, complete naval power over the Mediterranean. It ensured that the grain from Egypt could be used to supply uh, first Italy and later subsequently Constantinople, and it confirmed the Roman control over the eastern littoral, the eastern shorelines of the Mediterranean. And indeed, Western civilization, if you wish to use that term, continued in that position until the Islamic conquests. So I think that was a very important strength, uh, but a strength that was subsequently to be lost. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, could you talk a little bit about the, the importance of the, the Pax Romana in the Mediterranean Rim uh, and the, uh, the importance of that in spreading wealth and technology? Because well, the Romans uh, obviously were at war a lot, <laughs> but mostly in the periphery of the empire and a lot of times with themselves. But that Mediterranean Rim... Yes, the protection... Was, don't, don't worry, ask yeah. short questions. It's always a brilliant thing in conversation. The, Americ- the, the um, Romans had low protection costs for the central areas of their empire. That helped to produce a benefit that enabled them to operate, as you correctly say, with greater force projection on the periphery. So you can see more recent examples of that. So let me give you an instance without suggesting these are strictly comparable. After the Indian mutiny is ended in 1859, the protection cost for Britain of running its Indian empire, which gives it enormous manpower and resources and enables it to act as an Asian superpower, is very low. In the case of the United States, after the Civil War ends in 1865, the American state does not habitually need to use force to control its landmass. It has to um, defeat the surviving Native Americans. But in terms of them, once they've been controlled and of the rest of the population, actually America has control of a massive area, great resources, enormous industrial infrastructure at a very low protection cost. So these are very significant for force projection and for empires as a whole. And what that underlines is the extent to which the strength of a state domestically is often the key element in its military history. That state being that strength being sometimes the result of war and some in other words the suppression of insurrection and sometimes achieved without war being necessary okay and 
what degree of organization do military systems have in the 500 or so years after the fall of the Roman Empire and and the the Han Empire in China? Well, again, one's talk, one's got to think about the fact there's a multiplicity of societies around the world at that point. So if you're looking at those 500 years, you're encompassing, you're including societies that are still fairly organized. Mm. I mean, Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, for example, or the Abbasid Caliphate um, in what is now Iraq. But what you're presumably meaning by that question is, are the Dark Ages insignificant? And the answer is no, no, because most societies will develop or adapt a system of fitness for purpose in achieving um, military organization to uh, fulfill their goals. So, you know, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Franks um, were all able to achieve military goals in Western and Central Europe, even if they didn't have uh, forces the equivalent of those of the legions and the auxiliaries of ancient Rome. Yeah. And back then, there was no uh, sort of quote unquote world of war uh, due to graphic, uh, geographic isolation and the slow diffusion of, of technological developments. So war was uh, very, very localized. Well, you're absolutely right that it was very specific. So in other words, if you take military environments, the Americas, for example, have no horses. That's fairly significant and no real equivalent. You can't use llamas to stage cavalry battles. So that ensures... No metallurgy either, yeah. No metal, yes. They're outside the Iron Age. You can have obsidian weapons, which gives you a cutting edge. But yes, you're, you're absolutely right. They haven't had the Iron Age. Um, and obviously the same thing is true, for example, for Australasia. So you have got technological differences, you've got environmental differences, and then on top of that, within areas that are similar technologically, there are not necessarily wide-ranging military forces. Although having said that, groups like the Huns, or indeed um, the early Islamic forces, do range very widely. Mm -hmm. And you write that Infantry was already an effective force even prior to firearms, but uh, how big of a game changer was gunpowder and the development of firearms? You, you also read it took some time for cannon, for example, to live up to their potential. They weren't immediately yes, I mean, I think, uh, yeah. game changers. I would say I would say cannon were most effective um, by the end of the 16th century at sea, where the number of targets. Uh, were relatively limited, and the damage of those targets made an appreciable difference. Whereas cannon were not so, or gunpowder weaponry as a whole, was not as necessarily effective on land. Uh, that doesn't mean it was ineffective, but it wasn't necessarily effective. And we can then take that a stage further. We have to distinguish intellectually between the use of gunpowder weaponry against societies that don't use gunpowder weaponry and the use of gunpowder weaponry when both sides use gunpowder weaponry. Does that change the nature of war or does that negate any supposed advantage one would have? In other words, 
you could have to talk about the difference between relative change and aggregate change. And one of the problems is not all scholars have sufficiently uh, dealt, done that. In fact, some of the writing on the impact of gunpowder has been not exactly what one would call first class. Mm-hmm. And we get to the... Uh... What it's termed the age of sail and in the renaissance and it's really going to be the reach of naval power uh between say 1400 and 1763 that's that's going to transform war and transform the world well um i think that's if you don't mind me saying a western interpretation i don't think if you were sitting there in beijing in 1644 with the fall of the Ming Empire and the Manchu coming in, I don't think you were particularly concerned about what Europeans were doing at sea. And indeed, if you then look at the enormous expansion of Manchu or Qing, depending upon what you call it, Mm. China into um, Xinjiang, Mongolia, Tibet, none of that was dependent on naval force nor in the 18th century were expansionist forces such as Nadir Shah of Persia in the 1730s and 40s, or the Durrani dynasty of the Afghans in the 1750s and 60s, or the Maharatas in Western India mm. uh, up to uh, the 1800s. So I think partly it depends upon how we adopt and adapt our military history and as you may know, I did a book many years ago for Yale, called, which is a much bigger book, much, much bigger book, called War in the World, 1450 to 2000. And in a way, this new book is an attempt to think through it anew, but, you, mm-hmm. but resting on the same sort of point. I'm a, um, in military affair historian, military affairs, a global historian. That does not mean... I'm one of these stupid people that goes in for decolonization. In other words, Mm -hmm. force exists. Um, It doesn't mean you adapt an anti-Western interpretation. What you have to do is accept that Western forces were part of a multiplicity of successful military players. And you have to consider at any one time what provides capability and relative effectiveness. Now, you are absolutely right that in deep draft warfare, you're absolutely right, Western navies dominate the sphere. Um, The principal contestant, because the navies in East Asia, China, Korea and Japan, which are all important in the 1590s, do not develop uh, or sustain, I should say, a long range capability in the 17th or 18th centuries. And in fact, the next time that you've got an East Asian navy of any significance, it's Japan from the 1890s onwards. But in the meantime, it is European and eventually the United States are the key naval powers. And there, the interesting thing is that although there are differences between them, for example, the United States does not have a large, deep-sea, long-range navy till quite late. So Mm. if you look at the American Civil War, there are many warships, but they're essentially brown water, 
ships or ships for coastal engagements. So there are differences between, if you like, the Western navies, but there is a fundamental similarity. In contrast, if you're looking at land warfare, at, shall we say, the period of the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865, the variation is enormous. I mean, that period includes, for example, um, the war between Denmark and Prussia in 1864, which is very, very different in character, weaponry, doctrine, and everything else to the very large-scale conflict in China in the early 1860s, the Taiping Revolution. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that on land, there is a greater multiplicity of variation than there is at sea. Yeah. Now, more on that thread of um, European imperialism, it, you know, there's a lot of people that say that uh, the reason the Europeans were successful in imperial fighting was because of their uh, advantages in military technology. But uh, that's not entirely the case. As you said, uh, you know, techno technological advances, advances in, in weaponry, you know, could help the British conquer Burma and Nigeria, but not Afghanistan. And then you say that, you know, technologies of movement, uh, technologies of supply, technology of communication uh, were just as important to the European success in its imperial endeavors, uh, if not maybe more important than, uh, than their military technology. Well, I agree with you on that, but I would add other factors as well. I mean, people talk about Western colonialization, but of course one's got to bear in mind that Western colonial forces were an amalgam of Western and non-Western forces. So you mentioned the British in Burma. Of course, a lot of those troops were Indian. Sure. Um, same with the British in Afghanistan. The French in West Africa, they're mostly you know, French-African troops with white officers. And that element, I think, is very, very important indeed. Uh, that the bulk of European military effort, Western military effort, is not put um, into colonial expansion, but is actually put into confrontation between Western forces. So if you're looking at American history, in the 19th century, the biggest deployment of American troops is between 1861 to 1865 yeah, to fight absolutely. other uh, European Americans. It's not to, you know gather out in the Pacific. Right. Um, or, um, so I think that one has to put this in its context. And also, military success rests not just on the weapons you use, and as you correctly say, on your non-weapons technology. Military success also rests on standard issues of unit cohesion, morale, leadership, tactical adroitness, operational skill, etc., etc. And for a number of reasons, which we could discuss at great length, uh, there were particular advantages, but not uh, invariable advantages, that were enjoyed by the hybrid European uh, and non, as it were, allied non-European uh, armies of that period, of which the British Indian Army is an excellent example. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, getting a little, uh, going back a little bit and then uh, tying it into something larger, uh, I guess in a book about war, you kind of have to talk about Napoleon a little bit. Uh, but how did Napoleon's 
battlefield successes define warfare in the Western tradition. And also, could you talk a bit about the the importance of the role of the of the military strongman uh, throughout history, not just in uh, European culture, but in all cultures, really? Okay, Napoleon. Uh, I hope listeners are looking at my book on strategy in the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic <laughs> Wars, just published by Roman and Littlefield. Um, Napoleon, I have a very low view of Napoleon. I think he was an abysmal strategist. He led France to two. So you're not Andrew Roberts, defeats. basically. No, in 1814 <laughs> and 1815. Andrew knows what I think about Napoleon. I think Napoleon. I think Andrew's deeply flawed in his scholarship on Napoleon. He's fascinated by success in battle, and he loses, fo- and loses focus on failure in war. So no, I, I would argue that what is interesting and instructive of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic period as a whole is that the Ancien Regime armies or militaries, whether it's the Russian army or the British Navy, are the forces that are successful in the long term rather than the, as it were, the revolutionary imperial one. You ask about strongmen. Well, um, if by that you mean generals who seize power, uh, whether we're talking about Julius Caesar or Nadir Shah or Napoleon, um, that in a sense is a different form of what you might call a meritocratic monarch. In other words, a monarch who gains power by their own efforts rather than inheriting it, as on the British system, or being elected to it, as on the American system. And per se, a meritocratic monarch of that of that type is not necessarily terrible or awful, but they can have a problem that they're apt to sustain war and be very bellicose, and the only way to get rid of them is by total defeat of them, as with Napoleon twice, or by assassinating them, as with both Julius Caesar and indeed Nadir Shah. Mm. Okay. All right, now I guess let's get into the 20th century, um, more modern stuff. Um, so the Great War, uh, you don't buy the the sleepwalker argument that you know Europe just sort of groped and fumbled its way into war. That you write that the the, the nature of of pre war planning by the Austrians and the Germans and the willingness of uh, key figures, um, sort of on both sides, to turn to war, uh, accelerated the breakdown of the deterrence system. That it you know lasted uh, you know basically a hundred years uh, you know since the Napoleonic Wars. Yes, I don't buy the Chris Clark theory thesis. I think it's ridiculous. It's rather like blaming the Ukrainians for the current war in Ukraine mm-hmm. and saying that it's everybody. I, and actually, I specifically when Clark's book came out, I drew that analogy with because Putin had just invaded Crimea. Mm-hmm. So no, I think the active military planning by uh, Austria and uh, Germany is absolutely crucial. I think both of the, the militaries of both of those powers wanted war to an extent that you don't see, for example, in France. And that, that is the element one should focus on. And I also think that the military were more important in the decision-making process in those states than the diplomats who Clark and, uh, and others, he's not alone, and, um, tend to devote their attention to. Mm-hmm. And 
going on to the Second World War, uh, you know, there's probably more written about the Second World War than any war in history, and uh, there's, you know, lots of, you know, what can we learn from the Second World War? Uh, but the Second World War is almost sui generis in, in terms of the size of the forces involved, the, the area of the conflict, you know, the, the mobilization of entire societies and their, and their resources. Um, so it, it's hard to compare <laughs> the Second World War to uh, any other conflict, really, just because it's so unique in all of its characteristics. Well, it's certainly distinctive, yes. I mean, it's an umbrella war, by which I mean that it includes within it a whole range of conflicts, some of which are quite um, conventional or established in their, um, in their practice. So, for example, um, German counterinsurgency operations in Yugoslavia um, are, between 1941 and 1944, don't look totally different to what the Austrians were doing in Bosnia in the late 1870s. Mm. But conversely, the combined Allied bomber offensive against Germany has no precedent. Yeah. So I think it depends where one's looking at. We're talking about a, a lot of struggles bound together, but of very different character. The naval warfare is very, very different because although there are there is a, a large-scale use of battleships and other heavy surface shipping, nevertheless, the, re, the role of aircraft carriers in the Pacific um, is very different uh, to what had been seen before. The air war is different, but for example... Um, the the struggle against German submarines uh, in Atlantic waters and is and against indeed um, German surface raiders is not a million miles different to what had happened in World War One. Mm. And there are some other comparisons, as you know. The biggest killer in both world wars is artillery, for example. Sure. You know, people endlessly get fascinated and fixated on the German propaganda films about tanks and aircraft. But in, in practical terms, it's artillery that remains the great killer. And again, you'll know my books on tank warfare and on air warfare, uh, both published by Roman and Littlefield, in fact. Um, and in each case, I talk about the strengths of those types of weaponry, but also emphasize that they are primarily, uh, primarily um, of... Um, not of war uh, winning capability. Obviously, there's a big difference with the use of the atom bombs in 45, but you could argue that those are atypical of World War II rather than typical of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and back to the Germans, most people, when they think of the German army in World War II, I mean, they get sort of sucked in by the whole Blitzkrieg thing, and they think that the... Uh, the main reason for the German successes was the Blitzkrieg and the fact that the army was uh, heavily uh, motorized, heavily mechanized. But that's not the case. The the German uh, most uh, the overwhelming majority of the German army was um, on foot and uh, used horses to uh, you know carry provisions, uh, you know pull artillery, that sort of thing. 
yes, I mean, the German army had lots of deficiencies. It was also tended to be reasonable at the tactical level, uh, mixed at the operational level and terrible at the strategic level. Um, Hitler had no idea, no more than his general staff, had no idea how to translate success in uh, operational terms into uh, forcing his will on his opponents. Um, he was even more incompetent than Napoleon and again came down into total failure. Mm. And it is bizarre that so much attention is devoted to studying these failures. Yeah. So, and another thing people might not know about the, uh, at least basically from the middle of the Second World War when we start uh, pushing back on uh, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, that that period from 1943, um, basically through the fall of the, of the Soviet Union in 1991, uh, with the uh, with the European Imperial powers basically giving up their um, imperial possessions during that period as well. This is the the biggest transfer of tech, uh, territorial control in the entire history of the world. Yes, that's what I've argued in my book, and I think it's an important element and also linked to that. I point out that it has occurred at a time when the technological advantage was indeed with the powers that were yielding territory. So if you think about um, Britain and France, they were both atomic powers. Um, if you think about an episode like the Suez Crisis in 1956, the British deployed aircraft carriers, helicopter assault forces, uh, strategic bombers, and they lost. Um, and also they didn't feel it appropriate to sustain, by lost I mean in a broader political sense, they didn't feel it appropriate to sustain their operation. So I think that there are wider questions about military effectiveness that one needs to engage with. And that is what war is about. I mean, war is not an exercise simply in having better kit. It's not an example of saying, oh, um, you know, is the, um, you know, is the um, Tiger tank a better tank than the Sherman? Is this going to mean that the Germans win? Well, obviously, we know they don't win. They're outfought by the Americans. But also, there are a whole range of other criteria that take place, both in affecting uh, operations in the field and in affecting the broader parameters of warfare. And one of the things that I find very disappointing is a general unwillingness to think about war in this broad fashion. And if I, if I had to attribute it to a type of writing, I would say that the face of battle writing, mm -hmm. whilst very, you know, it's worthwhile, although it tends to tell us what we know anyway, that war is fairly grim, that people fight on largely because they have a strong sense of what they owe to their mates, their fellow compatriots, unit cohesion. Right. Uh, but what it doesn't tell you very much about, and you can look at book about, and book of this, is it doesn't tell you very much about strategic uh, acuity, operational, um, um, operational skill in matching the prioritization of resources, uh, logistical strength, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. 
So we end up with a kind of one-dimensional view of war. And what I have tried to do in all my books, and I'm sure there are flaws in them, but what I have tried to do in all my books is go for as many dimensions as possible in both discussing war and explaining it. And I think it's what we owe to those people who risked their lives in the past is to think with great maturity about what is going on as opposed to just engaging in an emotional response to the use of force, a kind of an emotional response which often is a kind of hero worship. Some of these people were heroes, but that's not the point. The point is to try and understand why results occurred. Mm-hmm. And you also say one other problem uh, in military histories is that discussion in these works uh, is usually uh, centers on uh, the big, uh, you know, the big battle, uh, the big campaigns, but not really the. Uh, there's not really a, a focus on skirmish or what you call small war, and despite the, the frequency of it and the significance of it. Yes, you're absolutely right. And the significance of it is particularly acute in insurgency and counterinsurgency operations. And the fascinating... I mean, you know, I've done a book like 80 Battles that Changed the World, that sort of thing. I've done one of those for Thames and Hudson, and I'd like to think it's a good book. But the need is to contextualize these battles. They can be really important at sea if there's only so many units. Mm. But on land, they generally are less significant than they are described. And as the term you use, small war, is a very good term. It's, that does not mean in, ineffective or unimportant war, because small war often determines the ability to continue to have supplies moving, to control or overall particular areas of territory, etc., etc. So an army that is not good at small war is not going to be an army that does well. It may, in fact, be able to win battles, but that doesn't mean it's able necessarily to um, achieve its goals. Mm-hmm. And another problem in uh, at least Western histories of wars. Uh, much of the world is primitivized and you know we're <clears throat> and we're not paying <clears throat> excuse me we're not paying uh close enough attention to non-western military history well i agree with you entirely on that my own view is that if you're looking at military history it has to be as much about peru paraguay and madagascar as it is about the united states or the united kingdom and indeed you could argue that the paradigm leading power in the set is by its nature atypical. And the problem for that is if you're the paradigm power, used to be Britain, now it's America, and you project your military force into a different military culture, if you do not understand that military culture and it has differing understandings and assessments of victory and defeat, suffering and loss, then you can get it wrong. You might be able to kill large numbers of Iraqis or Afghans or whatever compared to your own losses, but it doesn't mean that the other side will accept your equations of relative strength and success. And to my mind, this is part of a fundamental problem in military assessment, in strategic understanding, and in the assessment of the history of war. 
what I've tried to do in all of my books is try to get people to think about this, because otherwise we use our forces. And these are, I happen to think that actually both America and Britain are forces for good in the world. Mm -hmm. But if we don't use our force effectively, we hit up against major problems and we are wasting the manpower and money that we expend on our wars. And to an extent, that is what happened in the 2000s and 2000s and teens. There was a poor level of political and military leadership based on a lot of flawed assumptions, including technological triumphalism and and a failure to understand non-Western military practice. And it led to repeated mistakes. So I think this is sufficiently important that we need to rethink the way we imagine this subject. Mm, gotcha. And you write in the book um, that however much war looks towards the future uh, in tech, in technology, that it is often fought in the shadow of images of the past. Uh, what, what do you mean exactly by that? Well, I mean, the... Uh, People's understanding of the past can be tremendously significant to how and why they fight. Uh, A classic example is Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. I mean, his assessment of himself and of Russia uh, requires control over Ukraine and presupposes that his society is going to be more successful than a democracy. So, yes, I think images of the past can can be very, very significant. And the Russian regime has wrapped itself round a view of Russian geopolitics and of the great patriotic war, which is how they see World War Two. Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, I, mean, I, I would argue these are highly, highly, highly significant. Yeah. <clears throat> so what should we make of of this Russian invasion? I mean, it seems like it's almost a, well, a throwback. Well, I think we to... have to do that I think we'll have to do that on another podcast. Uh, we're running out of time. We have a podcast coming up okay. on on the problem with the universities. <laughs> All right. All right, you got it. So I'll just ask you one last uh, quick question, then something I ask everybody that comes on the podcast uh, at the end, and that's basically um, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? Or you know, what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from having read it? That war is fascinating and important, and that its fascination and importance rests on an intellectual engagement with war as a global phenomenon. That if you only look at it in narrow terms of a small number of of campaigns, captains and conflicts, you will fail to understand what went on in the past, what goes on now and what will go on in the future. All right, great. Well, uh, before we go, is there anything else you want to plug uh, real quick? A website, uh, social media, anything like that you want people to check out? Well, people can look at my website, um, which has a lot about my books. But if they want to look at some of my recent books, Short History of British Monarchy, Atlas of World War II, um, My History of Air Power, My History of Fortifications, My History of Tank Warfare, all of those are good books. All right, great. And the book we were just discussing uh, right now is A Short History of War. Again, it's available uh, in paperback now from Yale University Press. Uh, Highly, highly recommend it uh, to everybody out there. Uh, Very great little book. 
So make sure you check that out. A Short History of War, uh, the author, uh, Dr. Jeremy Blacks, and, and Dr. Black, uh, thank you very, very much for, uh, for writing the book and uh, coming on the podcast, podcast to uh, discuss it with me and uh, having a chat about it. I appreciate it. My pleasure. No problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have uh, any questions or comments, or if you have books you'd like to discuss with us in this comment, on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have a Twitter account for the uh, podcast. You can reach out to us there, too. Again, if you have any questions, comments, you know, feel free to send us a DM or give us a follow or whatever. Our uh, Twitter handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So make sure you check that out. And that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll uh, see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.